Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to tell you about Open Local Wine Night. Most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic. Through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity, they've been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines, and the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us and wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of, you guessed it, local wine. It's easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag OpenLocalWine. It's really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register. See you on April 10th. Today on the podcast, I speak to the sommelier and beverage director of Pinch Chinese, Miguel de Leon. Miguel is also the general manager of Pinch. This is a rare combination to be both beverage director and general manager of a place of that size nowadays. That was a lot more common uh, 10 plus years ago or so to be the general manager and also the beverage director. And we get into that in our conversation. We talk about the role of the sommelier pre-2008 economic recession, as well as what happened after that and leading up to 2020. It was definitely a roller coaster for the wine industry as it exists in restaurants. Miguel has been an incredibly important voice for the wine and restaurant industry over the last year as it's been rocked by the pandemic. Miguel is gay and a person of color operating in the wine restaurant industry at the highest level. And his the content that he's produced via the written word for publications like Punch, Food and Wine, and more, and at his own social media feeds have been very, very well-written and just sort of simple and always clearly getting right to the point without hyperbole. I highly suggest you follow Miguel. Listen to what he has to say because he has really, really risen to the occasion of being a leader in our industry when we really, really needed one. And I'm not sure that he necessarily wanted that or asked for that, but he has most definitely accepted the challenge and I'm grateful that he took the time to speak to me. Coming up in future episodes, I'm going to talk to my friend Jad Kamal. Jad was a bartender at Hearth Restaurant when I was a manager there. Jad went on to become a sommelier at some very high-profile restaurants as well. And we're going to talk about building a home bar. When I knew really very little about spirits, it was Jad who helped me put together my first sort of comprehensive home bar and taught me how to make drinks. So since uh, so many of us are now home bartenders as a result of the pandemic, I think Jad will have some tricks up his sleeve to help us take uh, take what we have on our shelves to, to make drinks at that next level. I'm also going to talk to Christy Frank coming up in a future episode. Christy is a longtime wine shop owner. She owned a shop in Manhattan, and she now owns a shop uh, up not too far from me in Copake in upstate New York. And just has a really excellent knowledge as what it's been like to stock wines for that very sort of wine industry, 1%, as well as a more broad consumer base. And we're going to talk about the Catawba grape, which is a grape that has been historically very important in New York and still is really very important and exists in multiple different uh, spheres of the wine industry space today. So I look forward to chatting with Christy about that. But first, Miguel, here we go.
welcome to a Northern Wine Odyssey. Big shout out, as always, to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Welcoming Miguel De Leon to the podcast today. Miguel, what's going on? Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. How are you? I, I'm doing fine. Thank you for making some time. Where whereabouts are you uh, right about now? Uh, I'm I'm in my apartment in New York City, trying to figure out what the rest of my week's gonna look like. <laughs> Fridays are kind of like my Monday Tuesday, so gotcha. a lot of the week planning happens uh, between yesterday and today, and then it right now really just trying to figure out what that cycle looks like. What are, are you perchance partaking in uh, dry January? What is dry January? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, I'm you. Yeah, I'm on day 22. But yeah. uh, I wouldn't, not to judge anybody who's like going through that and obviously, you know, not, not to like glorify alcohol consumption, but really, if you want to practice that, that's on you. I, I just, I know that I personally don't have that kind of patience or willpower. So yeah, but you have willpower like throughout the rest of the year. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember the last time I saw you, which was amazingly coming up on a year ago, was was actually the kind of the last thing that I did in New York City was that dinner at the Dutch. Oh yeah, yeah. When they when they when dessert came out, you looked at this whatever it was piece of cheesecake or something you were like mm, no that's like three days at the gym yeah <laughs> yep 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 um yeah i mean everything in moderation right like uh, i know that i can maybe i'm also uh on like uh pretty gnarly painkillers for my feet i i was trying to be a good person and, and i tried to run a marathon three years ago but ended up br- breaking both my feet and stress fractures so Oh man! And so it's not just the normal sort of like restaurant wear and tear. Oh, but but especially on top of normal restaurant wear and tear. So feels yeah. good. Feels good. Yeah. Every once in a while, I, I just have to be like, "All right, well, I'm not going to do anything for the next two weeks." So I've, I've I've come to take its course. Dry January can have its time for regular folks, but you know, next thing you know, it'll be like a dry two weeks of September for me. So. Do you do you find time like have you found time over the last year to 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 like exercise and and you know make time for fitness? Yeah, I mean, especially during quarantine, right? Like, if you don't do that for yourself, uh, at, at least for me, um, I go I go kind of crazy. I don't go to the gym. I don't have any of that, but I do have like a pretty well used yoga mat and some body weights and um, uh, resistance bands here at home. So that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I my last job, which had me on the road a lot, like I gained a lot of weight. So it's been good for me having more time and structure to 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 get back into the groove. So I've definitely kind of lost that weight. But it's funny, like I, I feel I feel good and everything. But I still have clothes that don't fit me. Because when I was working in restaurants, I was in a pretty good workout group. And then you go up and down three flights of steps all yeah. night. Exactly. So, man, that made a huge difference. Yeah, I never had to worry about breaking 10,000 a day when I was working service. But now it's also like, well, do I really want to go out of the house and, and consider like my personal fitness in a pandemic? Or should I just like go up and down the apartment steps? So it really just depends. Well, man, you, you have, I mean, everyone has had, had quite a year. And I'm, I'm really uh, grateful to be chatting with you today. Um, but before we get into any, any current events, take, take us through, uh, your sort of beginnings into the, uh, hospitality world as it relates to beverage. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I was really lucky to have stumbled into hospitality. Um, I think like a lot of people, I needed to make money through college. Um, it just so happened that my, my local restaurant was a small one called Chez Panisse. So, you know, I ended up answering little, the phone. Little, little restaurant. Small. I don't know. If you've heard of it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I ended up answering the phones and then it, answering the phones led to working the floor and working the floor ended up meaning doing a, everything for that place. And, you know, 
when you're when you're a shy college student who's just starting to get into wine and there's wine classes offered by John o over John Waters over at um Berkeley it's like okay well do I I should really take advantage of this and you don't really realize what position of privilege you're in until you're well past it you know I, it wasn't until I moved to New York until I realized that I had a pretty good foundation in terms of how to speak about wine and how to consider wine lists and and this idea of matching and pairing um, through Jono's eyes. Um, and then when I moved to New York, my first beverage gig out of the gate was at Momofuku. Um, you know, you build your restaurant credentials at places at, at, at all these other places, but Momofuku gave me the license to really consider beverage as part of the meal wholeheartedly. And this idea. And which, which Momofuku? For, for a lot of the downtown properties, I was kind of like bouncing up and down and doing half the projects here and there. Um, but mostly through sake and beer, I wasn't really even touching wine up until, you know, the Midtown properties had opened. Um, and wine wasn't really that big of a conversation for places like Noodle Bar, you know? Um, but even then, when we, when we think about the idea of pairing, for example, it wasn't a a traditional all wine pairing like we had been seeing in fine dining restaurants, right? Like there's a, there's a notorious pairing that Dave did for, uh, for crab that was just a, a can of Bud Light. Um, and to me, there, there's something that, that gave me license to be a little more adventurous that way, where you could take nostalgia, you could take uh, this idea of like maximizing deliciousness without regard to culture or tie or and even anything that was like remotely like, I don't know, like culturally salient, I guess you could say. You know, you you weren't so attached to the idea of like what goes together, grows together, et cetera. It was like, just find what's delicious. And it could be something that that's really in your bodega or something that's like far flung from the corners of the earth. But when you put the two together, it was magic, you know, sake and cheese, for example. Um, or, you know, another thing would be like the, the, the foie gras pairing with sweet sake. There's so many things there that just on a, on a culinary level seem adventurous, but on like an intrinsic level, it makes so much sense. Uh, and then after that, after Momofuku, um, I, the natural wine bug bit me at Casamono where I worked for a, a few years, um, helping manage the list and being general manager, um, you know, falling in love with things like sherry, which are super traditional, but, but at the same time, falling in love with things like Vinos Ambif, uh, where it's super, super natural. And like on the other, on the other side of things, like the opposite of traditional winemaking, right on the Vanguard, um, looking at Chenin Blanc in Spain, things like that, where it was also thinking about this idea of maximizing deliciousness, but more in like an a terroir perspective. And then and what, what year was that? Casamono? Uh, that was around 2012 till about 2016. Okay. That's interesting that you bring up Sherry, especially around that time. I remember Jim Sly and I were chatting about this once, like trying to exactly to figure out sort of how Sherry kind of made its big splash, uh, at least within the trade. Mm. And it was kind of right around that, right around yeah. that. That's, that's 2012 Obama, time. Obama's second term is what I like to, to define. <laughs> Perfect. And like we, I was working at Terroir back then and we were still giving away cherry for free during yeah. happy hour. Yeah. Um, and definitely Paul Greco probably had some influence, at least in the New York city market uh, in terms of the, the trade interest in sherry. But then Jim made a good point in that it kind of also hit the scene right around the time when the Jura was starting to get hot. Yeah, exactly. And, and you had those flavor similarities between something like a Vanjon and exactly. and Sherry. Yeah. One of my one of my last projects at Momofuku was helping open um Ma Pesh, which was the Midtown restaurant. Now when that restaurant opened, the entire wine list was only from the Jura, save for a handful of sparklers from Champagne, you know? So to challenge the notion of like what a wine list could look like in terms of the scope of something while limiting yourself to one specific region, you you really want to extend as much as possible what you can get out of it, right? And so, you know, we we would see things like Vangin or even MacVam, and that started to become part of our regular vocabulary. I think Jura was the gateway for a lot of us who are in natural wine now to like have that as a calling card, you know, whether or not it was Overnoy or whatever. But, uh, you know, and, and to consider 
how those flavors really shape what we would consider maybe flaw or intention. Um, I think that that was really crucial for us to start forming that. Now to push it to the extreme with something like Sherry was also really, I think, educational for all of us, right? To see, you know, oxidation pushed to the limit, to see, you know, acetaldehyde pushed to the limit um, and have it still be considered delicious and good and valuable. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me also to look back. I, I don't think Sherry has really quite broken through to mainstream consumer attention yet, um, but the Jura certainly has. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, there's an, there's an I think there's an ease of use there for the Jura. You know, it's 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 easy. It's much easier to attach yourself to like a the romance of a winemaking area, and the Jura has that in spades. Um, it's hard when when products like Sherry, where they they necess, by necessity have to be manipulated, that you lose a little bit of that like terroir magic, you know. Yeah, and it's a complicated process exactly. for, for for anyone to understand. Whereas if you really break down the Jura and its popularity, it comes down to largely, well, we're talking Pinot Noir and Chardonnay right. and an alternative to what became very expensive Burgundy. Or even um, something like Champagne, you know, like Champagne is mm-hmm. it's easy enough to understand because it's just one method through it. A, a generally one place, right? And when you look at Sherry, mm-hmm. it's like, well, here's like five methods in three different places, maybe four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's sweet, it, dry, yeah, exactly. So then, yeah. It's immediately more complex and immediately more complicated. Yeah, sadly, I, I think we 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 poured more sherry down the drain uh, at Terroir back then than than was consumed, um, but. Uh, what an education! Yeah, it's a good time. I want I want to chat about that uh, that period of, of time with you. Um, what year did you arrive in New York? Two thousand seven. Oh, okay, cool. So, can you remember? I, I got there in '08. So, shortly after that, of course, we're talking about recession time. My recollection is, if you wanted to become anything that resembled a sommelier. Back then, you had to become a manager. Would you agree? Because right, are you right now? You're general manager and beverage director at Pinch, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Remember back around 08, 9, 10, 11, Everyone who was talked about as being a sommelier was typically also a manager, which I think well, is very different today. Well, I mean, if I would, I would consider it even more specifically there was it was just a beverage position really right like you were just the beverage person um and to me i mean well while i was getting my come up right it was like you you work the floor you try to get your certification if you were getting certified um so uh, in the middle of your floor you would also be studying and then after you get your certification or once you complete that then there's always an inevitable rise to inventory management um and then at the same time, like making these purchasing decisions. And that I think that was like the traditional route was certification and then this very easy transition into management because of that. Now, the it was also very specific to like the kind of floor work that was a, that was available back then. Right. Like it was the, it was a really big renaissance of fine dining restaurants. So be just being a sommelier, there was plenty of work to just do the thing that you want to do, which was learn about wine, right? And whether or not you had a certification, it was an it was an actual avenue for you to be able to learn on the job. Now, and and the biggest difference, what I think now is that beverage positions inherently have to be managerial. Like it's hard to think about a floor sommelier position that's just floor selling, or even just beverage selling, right? Like now, it's also if you're a if you're a sommelier, you're you're also doing time uh, as a rat, as a seller rat, and also potentially doing all the purchasing positions. There's no such thing. There's no such delineation anymore. Like a junior som or a beverage director. I like I do everything. <laughs> there's no glamour in that. And but then again, on the flip side, is that nor do I expect my folks to have certifications, because to me practical work is way more valuable than, than theoretical work. Well, I'm, 
Okay, so that is, yes, agreed. I think to add to that, when I think back to that time, the the people that I can remember who were sort of the ones being talked about at, in the magazines and, and whatnot, uh, the, you know, Paul Greco, certainly, Juliet Pope at Gramercy Tavern, you know, Belinda Chang at the Modern, Levy Dalton, uh, who I think back then would have been like Alto, Alto, yeah, the mm-hmm. Michael White restaurant. All of them were managers on salary. Like none of them were in the tip pool. Correct. And in fact, most of them were also doing the payroll and making the schedule. Things like that. So it seemed to me back then that if you wanted anything to do with beverage, you had to become a manager. And I and I guess it it might have been looking more specifically at Paul and Juliet because that was sort of the world that I mm-hmm. that I existed in for a little while. Uh, Paul called himself general manager and beverage director. At, actually, I don't even think he called himself beverage director. He just called himself the general manager at Hearth. And later, when I worked at Gramercy Tavern, you know, we always thought of Juliet as the beverage director, but she was so much more than that. She, when I went to interview there, she she was the one who interviewed and ultimately hired me, but it was just for a waiter position. It wasn't anything to do with beverage, really. And I learned that she was very much not entitled, but she was a service director. And I think that actually that was one of her incredible talents, maybe even more so than, than beverage. I mean, she was great at that too, but I can't really think of another manager that that was as good at just managing the floor during a busy service. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that was one of the reasons that people talked about the wine program at Gramercy Tavern so much was not so much that it was like heads and shoulders better than other restaurants, but it was a nice place to drink. Maybe yeah. it was a nicer feeling that you had when you were there drinking and, and largely because of Juliet, especially yeah. if she was on the floor. For sure. Juliet, Juliet was one of the people that I certainly looked up to in terms of considering style and considering like how I would approach um, beverage service. I mean, I was hired at Casamano as a service director, not as a not as a wine person. Um, but because of an of, of a very specific awareness to the guest experience and how we can make wine better. Right. When it, especially at a place like Gramercy or, or, or a place like Casamano where um, wine is such an integral part of the experience, you know, and in a place like that, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, uh, out of scope for some nights to be, you know, 60, 40 beverage on food or, uh, very close to 50, 50, which is almost unheard of in regular restaurant spaces, you know, in terms of the split of what, what it's taking. But again, you want to empower as much of your staff as possible through all the other things that are in your toolbox, not just in beverage. I think that that's one of the holistic ways why I think management is such a, an integral part of the sommelier experience. Like you're not just managing like your inventory, you're also managing your guest expectations and every table is different. And for you to not be able to read a room, you might as well just be a busboy. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a really big difference in terms of how you need to be able to approach a table. Mm-hmm. Do you remember back around then there was a lot of talk from from these people that were that we're speaking of now about how post two thousand eight the the kind of like beverage director wine director position as specifically that beverage only focused position sort of went away as a result of the the recession and I'm thinking back to restaurants like uh, Crew which closed mm. shortly after that um, Tabla closed shortly after that um, Veritas not so long after that. And these were like those temple of wine places, right? Well, my recollection is that there were no like floor sommelier positions anywhere except those giant temple of wine places or like three-star Michelin. Yep. So I, I remember when I just kind of was started to focus on finding what the right beverage position would be for me, it just didn't seem like there was anywhere to go other than to become a manager because I didn't want to go to the, the three Michelin star route. And though I was just, I would just would have never been hired either, either at one of those places or a place like Veritas or crew certifications were not even in my head at all. 
because they weren't spoken about at Hearth or at Gramercy, at least not back then. They would be now. But um, I just remember hearing all those people talk about the sort of glory days of before the recession, you know, when you just had DRC open every night and Vegas, you know, Vegas, uh, Sicilia and like just all these kind of baller wines. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I've never had any of those wines and it doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to, to get my hands on any of those wines or to be able to taste them anytime soon. Although, oh, and then, you know, all those same people would mention, you know, the kind of like sommelier era was gone with the recession but it did pick back up in quite a big way between like 2012 and, and 2020. I think we saw sort of the rise of the floor sommelier. And when I say that, more like a wine captain in the yeah. tip pool. It like all, around That position also became so much more, I would say like, I don't know, democratic even, is that the the idea of like the the trickle down effect of like having a floor sommelier became so that it was part of general casual service, right? It wasn't just restrictive to fine dining. It started to creep into places like Pearl and Ash, um, where, you know, who you came, who you came, come, come as you are um, as part of the sommelier service, right? Like we're not going to divorce, start divorcing the person from the service. I think that was a really big shift for a lot of people because it was, that's a great example. It Pearl was, and Ash. You know, it was the first time that people started to consider personality with lists and of course, Patrick had a really deep list at Pearl, but at the same time, it was also like the first time that we were we were really able to connect with a group of sommeliers or maybe even just like a group of people um, who were enthusiastic about wine. And and I think that was when the shift started to really divide the group into like traditional certificate seeking sommeliers, and then also this idea that like the only track to learn more about wine and to learn more about um, the wines that you were just talking about, for example, to for you to have an opportunity to taste that is to go into really, really fine dining. And those two spaces clearly existed all at the same time, right? We saw the rise of so many fine dining restaurants and like the legacy of something like uh, 11 Madison Park um, because of, of the, like, the roster of people that it produced in its wine program and in its bar program. You see that they they understand the knowledge of that and then to, to trickle it down to a place like, say, for example, like Company de Van, right? Um, where people are really excited about a, a, a wine vision, uh, a depth of, uh, of a program, but at the same time, like, they'd be wearing Hawaiian shirts behind the bar. And that, that was, like, perfectly fine for a lot of people. And I think that was, that was the beginning of that transition, that shift of thinking of uh, wine knowledge doesn't have to be in such an ivory tower place. Yeah, it, Pearl and Ash again, and then of course Rebel later. Uh, I I feel like that was the first time I went into a restaurant and sort of looked at the list, picked out what I was going to have, and tried to order it from the server. And and I was not allowed to do that. It oh, was like, God. okay, hold on, hold on. And then either Patrick or Kim came over. I, I don't remember who, but. That was shocking to me because coming up through Hearth and Terroir, it was all about the server or the captain doing this, making the sale and doing all the service. And we didn't call ourselves sommeliers. No one did. The only person who like sort of assumed that title was Paul Greco, and he didn't even call himself that. And so it was, but it was very much encouraged that you as the server on the floor, back then at least, the servers who worked at a place like Hearth or Gramercy, because it was really the same, uh, you were encouraged to study the list, have the beverage knowledge. I mean, you had to. Or yeah, you wouldn't, of course. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have been able to get the job back then. That definitely changed over time. Um, and I just remember it being so different to me. It was like, oh, oh hold on. You're kind of like stopping the momentum at the table here and I have to talk to someone else now. Okay, whatever, fine. And I don't know if that was you know, sort of put in place by Brandon or Patrick. Um, but after that, the Pearl and Ash sort of startup era, you saw restaurants like Marta 
I mean, we're talking about a pizza restaurant that had like seven floor sommeliers. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, I, I will say like even before that, I think the first time we saw like a proper breakdown of that, you know, that like gate kept wine energy uh, for at least for me was uh, at a place like Cork Buzz, you know. So when you have a proper master sommelier literally just serving you whatever she wants behind a bar, that's meaningful as a, as a person who's coming up in wine, you know, you're like, well, I want to learn about something. And for Laura to have made that experience be so upfront and, and personal because it's, it, it, she wasn't just offering you her opinion, right? You would expect that somebody who would be like, that would be mentoring somebody who's also gunning for their MS. But she was one of the first people that I remember meeting who was like, we should just start talking about this stuff as for everybody who's just enthusiastic about it. Because the more knowledge everybody has, the better everybody's careers are, the the better everybody's experience is. Yeah, and and look at it now. I mean, it's still going strong. I, I remember not really understanding or or really embracing Cork Buzz when it opened for whatever reason. I don't know. I was not a fan. I'm a huge fan now, and, and it, it you're a hundred percent right. It, it became this really very hospitable place for wine education and just to hang out and it's still around when sadly we've had to say goodbye to places like pearl and ash rebel rouge tomate and and unfortunately others um so this is kind of crazy just to kind of maybe close on this topic but when i started working at gramercy tavern it was 2014 there had never been a floor sommelier in to to assume that position. Wine service, if a guest asked to see the sommelier, and I'm doing air quotes, all that happened was the, the server would walk away and go get a manager, any manager, anyone who was in a coat. And then they would walk over to the table and do the wine service. Even if the, the server had more wine chops than the manager, which was often the case, it didn't matter. That was the rule in the playbook. Huh. My first night on the floor there was the very first night that they ever had a wine captain in the tip pool. And I remember it was Dave McQueen who later became service director at Gramercy. He was a captain at the time. They tried to get him to be a manager for a lot of years and he just didn't want to. He is now last I heard the general manager of Marlowe and sons and diner. Hmm. Um, and so that was 2014. They tried it out. I guess it went well. So they most nights had, a wine captain. And it was funny, the team of wine captains that Juliet put together, again, not necessarily the people that had the most wine knowledge, but it was really the people who just knew the list and like knew the hospitality vibe. And it worked pretty well. And it's funny to look back at that because it was only at dinner and it was only like Tuesday through Saturday. So there was, you know, Monday night, Sunday night, still no wine captain and never a wine captain at lunch. Now, or at least, you know, before the pandemic at Gramercy, every day, every service, lunch and dinner, two wine captains. Necessary, right? That, that position became absolutely crucial to the existence of, like, well, to, to, to be able to, like, make money off of that service was selling wine. And I think it was part of the, part of the idea that, like, wine became such a part of New York dining culture like right around that time. I, I mean, a very similar experience happened to us at Casamono, um, right around the time when Ashley Santoro left, like that position, that, that beverage director sommelier position, which was originally management, transitioned to floor psalms. Um, and we, we never used to have like a team before because it was always a manager handling sommelier duty, just like you said. And then it became, oh, we have a team of three sommeliers for for splitting up the days of the week and for maybe lunch services on the weekends. So I think that the, the prevalence, well, culturally also as a touchstone, right? Like the, the idea of having wine uh, uh, in the middle of your meal was, was kind of glorified. There was also like the Psalm movies sideways had come out. And so all of those things that add to the psyche of American culture saying that wine is a thing that is okay for Americans to have at every meal had shifted and especially in a place like New York where those things are accelerated by, you know, a, a, a culture that really emphasized an idea that 
this is what we need to be doing, or this is, this is like the future of this industry. Um, wine was a crucial part of that. You saw places start to offer, you know, wine pairings at lunchtime and not in traditional, uh, Michelin temples. You know what I mean? Like there were, it was always going to be available at a place like per se, but then it started to become available at places like ours, like at Casamona. You would never have, have, have thought to put like a sommelier's choice pairing of four glasses in the middle of lunchtime on like a Wednesday, but people would buy it because it was available. Totally. What a great upsell that became. I mean, yeah. same thing happened at Gramercy Tavern. There were no pairings listed on the menu for like the first 20 years of that place. All of a sudden, lunch and dinner, pairings are listed on the menu and duh, people went for it. Exactly. Exactly. And check yeah. averages went up. You made it you made it available. Exactly. If you made it available, people would get it and check averages would go up. And the direct result of that is people specializing in those things. And, you know, I think we've come up in a generation of people who are you know, really privy to the idea that like, we're the ones who are setting the tone and the experience for the for the betterment of the establishment. But at the same time, it was also a way for us to afford our point of view for for something like that. And, and, and at first, it was really just to get, you know, your stock of port out of your basement. But then it became, you know, something a little bit more artistic, which I will I will say, like, thank God. <laughs> yeah. And, and the only thing that sort of leaves me a little bit sour talking about this uh, strategic floor service is I didn't like the places that I dined in or worked that did not allow servers to touch the wine list. So mm. for, so that was Rouge Tomat for me. So I was a floor sommelier there and no one touched wine except the sommelier team, uh, except for wines by the glass. Servers were certainly encouraged. But just because of the like, forbidden nature of the vibe in there even wine by the glass service ended up being like the guest would ask to see a sommelier and i would go over to a table and it's like really you're just i'm here to just give you a glass of sauvignon blanc like this doesn't seem right and i felt like there if if you had a server who was very curious about beverage and wanted to learn and wanted to go through those steps you're depriving them of that of that opportunity uh, well, so I, I, I think that's when we that's when we started to see the fracturing and this like ne- this necessitation of uh, certification. Like the 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 path to legitimacy very clearly became you need a wine education before you even step into this restaurant, and that's when it got really dangerous with the gatekeeping that the the, the structures and systems that we've seen really crumble in terms of something like that. You know, I agree with. And there you. were there were servers who were certified and things like that, and. I mean, I, like, really what it boiled down to for me is that it slowed service down. Yeah. <laughs> it slowed turns down. Yeah. Like, there were there were bartenders and servers who could have so easily got that $60 Cote Jerome on the table. You know what I mean? No problem. Sure. And would free, you know, the rest of us up to be elsewhere, you know, maybe were, uh, doing service for somebody who had a, a loftier order Yeah. Uh, for, for, for whatever reason. And I'll ask you this, like, was it worth it for you to give up that table for that sommelier then to maybe convert that into like a $200 bottle of Cornas, for example? Like, to me, that was never, I mean, like, maybe you're doing a better job for, for, for someone who was genuinely curious, but for a lot of those places, like, they were going to flex anyway, you know, like the people who wanted to, to spend their money were going to spend their money anyway. Mm-hmm. And so necessitating a sommelier touch was maybe just the thing to consider from the get-go. I agree with you that like, yeah, we also saw service turns really stretch in that span of time. Like basically from from 2012 on, right? Used to yeah. be, you could expect a table in 45 minutes anywhere. And it became, well, no, you should be expecting your table back in two hours. Yep. And that, yep. It's, it's a direct effect of something like that, of, you know, finding all of these, uh, like, you know, places of microtransactions on the menu, right? Like the upsell from, well, you could have a salad or you could have a foie gras course. Like <laughs> the, the, the equivalency of that as a course to me was like mind blowing the first time I saw it, but it was afforded to people and the people who wanted to spend because, you know, exactly. There were, there were people who were willing to kind of part with their money that way. Then would we really deny them that experience? Not really. But the fact that it was so aspirational, I think was, was also another cultural touch point that we can that we can look at. 
Yeah. So I think what we've illustrated here is, you know, from 08 to 2012, when our some of our elders in the industry talked about how the, you know, the, the sommelier beverage director position was sort of uh, eliminated as a result of the recession, we saw quite a comeback in more ways than one, not only in beverage director managerial positions, but also the floor sommelier boom. And it was really great because I look at it in like this. Back in the 08, 9, 10, 11 days, the only people who ever got recognition were the beverage director, general manager types, right? Levy, Mike Madrigal, Belinda Chang, Pascaline, Juliet. Nowadays, or in the last five years or so, we see people like our friends, people like Chris Strzok, Tira Johnson, you know, in, in magazines and being quoted. That would have never happened back in those earlier days because they weren't beverage directors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty great mm-hmm. that, uh, that others are, are receiving recognition uh, for, for their efforts. I mean, and you, you don't have to be the, you know, the sort of rock star general manager, beverage director or whatever. And so I think we've also, we also saw that after the recession, the, the wine position sort of came back and was even amplified. So my question to you is, after we get out of this pandemic, how do we make that happen again? How do we get all these jobs back for our peers who are still unemployed? Uh, We need to have an open and willing conversation about what the future of the industry looks like, first of all, right? For, For a few of us who were still in the tip pool, and especially because we were in the tip pool, we were really deprived of like a proper living wage. Um that we were solely dependent on what we would be able to sell that night, which of course relied on our skill and our knowledge. But at the same time, it was, it, it, I think was inherently devalued by the fact that it was because of our skill and knowledge that got us the tip money, you know? So that's one conversation that we need to be having is, is how do we provide not just the, not just a, a, a good job, but a, a capital G good job um, with, with all of the, systems and, and things in place. People love, people love to keep talking about like going back to normal. It's, and it's like, you, we know, we know now that the, that the way that we understood hospitality can't exist. And so to me, uh, I think there's, there's a further segmentation of, of wine, um, maybe a specialty, maybe in specialty stores, uh, maybe a different kind of service model. We'll have to see, but, uh, to me, the future is really optimistic in the fact that like, because we have such a big breadth of knowledge now, which was necessitated by all of this other stuff that we had been talking about, um, wine, I think wine in the consumer sphere, at least, um, it's we're a little bit more nimble to be able to do whatever we need to do. I think we're going to be seeing shops and restaurants that are like a little bit more hybrid, uh, you know, like maybe they're a retail stop that also sells wine by the glass. But then again, that's also challenging alcohol norms in states. Um, so there, the, it's a bigger question that, that requires bigger answers and a, and a really thorough investigation of how we treat alcohol as a, as a society, um, but more especially as Americans, because our relationship to it has been skewed at least for 100 years because of prohibition. And, and we're still reeling from the effects of that. And the pandemic has clearly shown that there's a thirst for it, you know, pardon the pun, but there, there's something that is absolutely necessary for the survival of the industry when people are getting their cocktails and their wines delivered from restaurants and people are really enjoying that as, as end consumers. But somebody had to make the decision to say yes to that, you know? And so if we don't have those systems in place, um, I think looking for the, the way for restaurants to come back is a little moot until, until the, like the government and, and the other systems that we would consider as helpers in this uh, in this endeavor make those decisions. And the only way that we can do that is like by, by pressure and by getting loud. Well, I, you touched on this a little bit and I, I, I would be curious to hear you go further on this subject. I hear a lot of talk about stimulus and People like Tom Colicchio, Danny Meyer, Bobby Stuckey, whoever, they go on CNN, they talk about how much the restaurant industry needs stimulus. And yes, people need money. 
there should be money for people right now. But what frustrates me is that none of these very these highly visible uh, restaurateurs are talking about what are we going to do to have a better restaurant industry when we get out of this. I mean, we knew it was already broken. Yeah, I mean, the like pandemic sort of you know established that, made it legit. Now everyone knows it was broken, and no one seems to be talking about how we're going to build it better. Yeah, absolutely not. It's because they were profiting off of the labor of the people who were working for them from the beginning. You know, if you're at the very top of a chain, do you really want things to change? No, you want it to go back to normal. And to me, that's a that's that's the bigger like issue here, right? Like we can. Talk- but I would challenge that by asserting that they shouldn't want it to go back to normal because the margins right. were oh, too razor thin. You're abs- you're absolutely right. But when Danny Meyer is making billions off of burgers, he can afford to pay his workers health care. You know what I mean? There's no But we still see the brick and mortar restaurants not having this conversation. Correct. The one-offs, that restaurants that we love, sure. you know, and, and still I'm still frustrated that we're not having the the I don't think we're having the whole conversation. And David Chang, to give him some credit, and I know that he very well may be a monster, but when he does talk, he often makes good points about how the restaurant industry is going to look in the future. He talks a lot about fast food. He talks a lot about delivery and he never goes super granular on it. I wish he would um, because he does seem to have an interesting intuition that maybe others don't. But you know what I'm saying? Like, what what are you must have thought about a, a few concrete examples of how we can change when we have the opportunity to change? Um, I, I mean, like outside of the like wage gap reforms that I've been speaking about, I think one of the easiest ways is to really examine uh, the divide between uh, back of house and front of house in terms of just a bigger restaurant uh, problem. Um, when we engage people to, and, and like this is this is the bigger thing for me is like when we engage our regular guests and customers about what their foods actually cost, and how we as an industry have really tried to keep it so low for as long as possible, um, that's a bigger conversation. And I think that that's that's the thing that's most valuable is that if once we start engaging the public in this in this idea that food should be paid for, labor should be paid for. Um, and it's not just restricted to finer dining places, right? There's, there was, uh, there was a couple tweet, tweets going around about, you know, if you, if we start paying minimum wage workers, uh, you know, $15 an hour, then our burrito is going to be 10 bucks. And it's like, well, actually the fact that, that they're getting paid minimum wage means that your burrito can be a dollar right now. But if, even if we increase like labor to the right number, there's still, a really messy system in terms of our foodways and our food politics that we haven't spoken about, right? For a restaurant to close, if a restaurant closes, what else happens to the restaurant um, or, or to, to all the other ley lines that, that lead to that restaurant? The first is that all of these supply chains that used to go to that restaurant get severed. So a farmer might not be getting paid. A winery might not be getting paid through its distributor. Um, there's definitely less of a connection with the neighborhood. Uh, you lose uh, neighborhood ties because of the jobs that you've lost. So it's it's a really big and really crucial domino effect when something like that happens. And yes, we t- we talk about these places with such like fondness and memory, but it's also you got to remember that like there's people working in that space, and that that ultimately is the conversation piece that we lose because the commodification of the service is so romanticized, right? We love thinking about like the times that we spent at a restaurant, but, and, and we also say as an industry that like, if you don't remember your service and we've done our job right, which I think we should start to reconsider. And, 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 and that's a really big philosophical shift. Um, especially when we come from an industry that has tried to say yes to as many things as possible. Um, but in the future, I think like, like I mentioned before, like we're, we're going to need to really see a, a sort of segmentation, whether or not that's like takeout delivery, maybe like a very specific experience just for dessert, specific experiences just for wine. 
and I think that that's the way that we need to think about this is that, you know, if we need to start looking at the idea of paying for labor, then we also need to start thinking about who it affects when we do that. Um, because it's not just the worker who's serving you. It becomes, uh, it becomes a really generous domino effect when we think about, you know, when you're paying your winery, right, that means that they're able to probably pay the people who are working their vineyards correctly, which also probably means that there's better protections for those workers so that there's uh, fewer environmental impacts, right? So they're probably spraying less so that they could protect those workers, which means that they would be looking at more uh, healthy, world healthy and environmentally friendly kind of alternatives. So there, these are bigger steps that we can take, but it's we have to zoom out a lot when we consider when just paying somebody for their worth. So uh, the onus is going to come on the guest a bit more to understand that, to, to have to have these experiences, they got to pay for them. A hundred percent. They're going to see. They're, I mean, I think, I think that's one of the things that we, we haven't really touched on in the industry. Like we're so afraid that a guest is going to take their dollar somewhere else. But it's like, where? Where are you going to spend that money if you know that you can provide a unique experience in your restaurant? they're going to want to spend their money with you. And if you align yourself with these kinds of policies that not just, not just maximize deliciousness, but also maximize the human, the human potential that you provide as a business, my God, like, is that not, is that not a win-win? <laughs> mm, yeah. Either, either they need to be willing to spend more or understand that restaurants are just going to be worse. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're coming up on an hour. I have a couple more questions that I want to ask. Um, and, and first of all, I just want to, I want to, while I have you myself, thank you for all the content that you've produced in the last year. It's you, you have been a busy man this last year and everyone should know that. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, it means a lot when people want to listen. Well, and, and I, I hope everyone is and, and, they should definitely follow follow you and look for your byline in, in all the all the places that you're writing for and certainly on social media. Um, it it really has felt over the last couple of years to me that and my oh, this is probably a topic for another day, but <laughs> the the various wine circles in, in in the country have become so divided, and it's it seems unnecessary and just counterproductive. So I guess we can, we can talk about sort of the very status driven circle uh, in comparison to the natural wine circle in comparison to the more sort of mainstream consumer circles. And then there is that little bit of crossover and you are someone who is forward thinking and well-rounded and has been able to exist in the middle of the Venn diagram. And I'm curious to hear how we can better all coexist. I think when we approach wine less as an idea of, um, to me, I've always approached this, this this way, that wine is for everybody, right? It sounds really optimistic because it is. Um, and it's, there's, the only way that we can understand wine as a group is if we push it for everybody. Not to say that we should be drinking all the time, you know, but I mean, it, on the very general romantic sense of wine as a whole, as an industry, as a group of people who want to drink, um, there's joy in the thing that we seek. But we have to remember that, you know, for a lot of us, wine is a luxury item. It has continued to exist in that sphere for forever. And it was because it's a luxury item that there's been gatekeeping behind it, right? People want to, people want to have exclusivity in the thing that they want to have specialties about. It's the reason why the court was like so adamant in having just its members do all of that stuff. Um, and even now, maybe even looking at like certification and things like that, like there's such a strong uh, connection to old European roots that it education to me fails the modern context. And to me, what, what, what we mean when we talk about the modern context is that there's every kind of drinker um, and in every place of the world. Uh, and we have to be able to kind of look at them in the, in the, 
in the most human way. And I, I, I don't mean this in like um, lowest common denominator, but it's you have to look at it in another math way, right? Like what's the greatest common factor that we all have? And that's our humanity. Um, and if I can make you understand that the place that we both like, for example, the Mosul, right? If we can talk about the Mosul with care and with compassion, it sounds hokey, right? But when you consider that the Mosul was a white winemaking region for forever, as long as we've known it, and then there are now people like Johanna Selbach making Pinot Noir in a place that used to never do red wine. We have to consider that they're also having to change things up. Um, and then on the flip side of that is that, you know, wine having European traditions and European roots creeping into everyday places like Chinese restaurants, um, that, that means that the conversation has necessarily gotten wider. Um, but we also have to remember that every wine experience, just like every human experience, is valid. And that your existence does not mean that someone else's value is lower. It actually means that just the entire human experience is greater to begin with. And to me, I've always taken that kind of philosophy and looking at beverage and looking at drinking, right? When we're talking about maximizing deliciousness, I also mean we're maximizing our human potential. I've said this before, but when we when we talk about like the the optimism of the future that we can provide through this lens it means that we're so much better through it culturally because of what's available to us, what's been made available to us. And the conversations that we can have now, we never would have had even just like, you know, 70, 80 years ago, right? With the advent of something like refrigeration, right? Like we can talk about like um, public health and public safety and, and in terms of like making your water safe. That's that's a byproduct of the, the, the technologies that we can all share in. Uh, and to me, being empathetic in that wine experience is so, so necessary. Whether or not you're a traditionalist or a natural wine person, I, I kind of, to me, it doesn't matter. But for you, the biggest question to me in terms of why it doesn't is, is that exactly. Like you have to worry about the motivation behind people wanting to keep those divisions. And you have to continue to question that because if if the, if a division exists like there there has to be some benefit for someone um and if it's not if it's not for the for the betterment of that then why consider that in the first place right we talk about um certifications as as one of those things we talk about um maybe even very traditional wine routes so there's a generation of us paul we we touched on this way way earlier there's a generation of us who haven't had those quote unquote great wines of the world right? There's a generation of us who have not touched a drop of DRC if it weren't for something like La Polay. Or th there's, a there's a generation of us who would never know what Vegas Acilia Unico is if it weren't for places like Casa Mono. And so to me, the, the overarching um, experience that I come away with is that all of these experiences, they can be fine and dandy, but the minute you start placing hierarchical values in them, that's when it gets unproductive. And that's when you start losing people because then your vocabulary becomes jargon. And that's when also, you know, you're, you become a person of, of, oh, you didn't know this. Why not? As opposed to let's show you, let's show you what this is all about. And it's an attitude shift that's necessary. If, if we're have, if we want to continue to have these conversations, it's all about empathy. We just want to be able to say yes to each other as much as we can. How are you able to, keep that mindset because it, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a willingness to be open-minded. I mean, I can share really only one aspect of, of what we're talking about that has happened to me. And I've only realized this in the last year. And I say this knowing full well that I 100% have been, was born into a position of privilege, but over the last 10 years, how, you know, again, a story for another day, my interest in something like New York wines or wines from the Northeast happened and I, I followed the interest. And I can't tell you how many times I went to tasting groups or events and I would bring those wines, whether it was a blind tasting or whatever, and I would be eye-rolled at, talked at, people would talk behind my back, laugh, everything. 
And it really, I really wrestled with, is it even, can I even have a career in this, in this industry uh, with, with these interests that I have? And I struggled to, to keep that interest while also making sure to study the rest of the wine world. And the funny thing is, is that in the end, keeping my track on New York and other, other areas in the Northeast of North America was the only thing I ever got any recognition for. And so had I gone another direction, I, I, I mean, I, I just don't think I could have, uh, you know, enjoyed uh, or even had a career. And man, that feeling of not being included or not being wanted resurfaced in me in a dark way in the last year with everything that went on. Mm-hmm. And it's really terrible. And I know that so many have gone through much worse. Mm-hmm. But how do you how do you wake up every day and sort of keep your disposition? And how can you how can you sort of explain that and codify that for the rest of us to to strive to be the same? I mean I think I think for us, like we've gotten to a point where in our not just in our careers, but also in our lives, that wine has been part of our identity. Um, clearly, it has been for me. Um, and to me, and, and you've spoken to this very, you know, succinctly, is that um, your your relationship with wine has become part of you, right? Like when you when you say, I think when I when I hear when I hear your name, I like, okay, Paul's the New York guy. Right. And the, the fact that we can get to that point of tautology is kind of crazy. But at the same time, it's like when you consider how much of yourself you put into this kind of line of work, you want everything that you take in to be 100 percent defensible. Um, and to me, I just follow through on those kinds of things. Uh, I mean, the motivation really is a little bit of, of a self-preservation thing, right? Like, am I being selfish in considering these people as like part of my quote unquote brand? Like maybe, but at the same time, it's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to align myself with someone who's a rapist or someone who uses slave labor for their wine. You know what I mean? There's, there's a, there's a general compassion for what, what they're putting someone else through. Um, and and to me that like you know if if we're going to be proud of a place right like if we're going to be proud of a place like New York for example you want the best you want you want to you want to be showcasing the best out of all of that and to me it's not just it's not just the one place i want to be able to say you know what wine is a wonderful thing when we look at the best of people and when it produces the best out of somebody uh steven bitterall at von boden has this wonderful wonderful quote that he says to me all the time and and I've I've taken to heart too is that you know it's great to meet great people um who it's great to meet uh, it's great to taste good wine sorry it's great to taste great wine um but sometimes it's made by mediocre people it's our, it's our jobs to find great wines made by great people and ultimately that's the kind of relationship that I would want to have with with a lot of our with our with our peers and colleagues, right? Is that like, I want to, I want to be able to find the best in you. Um, and I want to challenge what you think is, is the best. Like there's no need for complacency here. It might be a little bit of like exceptionalism, but at the same time, it's like, this is the, this is the way that we can make sure that we can really make something out of this. I, I learned very quickly in my career that self-reflection and self-improvement go hand in hand. And if I can, if I can maybe, even inject a little bit of that in my point of view or in my circles, then, then it's not just me who's improving. It's everyone else. Yeah. Very well put. Um, the, 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 these are questions that I've been dying to ask you for, for a little while now. So again, uh, thanks for, for taking the time and uh, everything that you've been doing at pinch, man, you guys have been scrappy throughout this whole thing. And, and that's been fun to see the various places that have been able to shift, sell wine at retail from their space, deliver food, do what it takes to. And I, and I know it's, it's everyone is just barely getting by, but it's still, uh, you know, heartwarming that uh, those of you have been able to, to keep it up are, are continuing to do so, uh, you know, despite the absolute worst playing field. Yeah. So Oh man, I'm going to let you go. Best of luck uh, as we, as we 
round this corner, which I hope is for real in the in the coming months. And uh, really look forward to uh, the next time we can uh, drink a drink together. Yeah. Same here, Paul. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. We'll do it again. Thanks again to Miguel de Leon. Search for this episode at the Cork Report podcast media feed in Spotify, Apple Plus, Google Plus, and more. And thank you again to Dave Miller for our opening.